This episode was recorded in October of 2021, prior to the emergence of the Omicron variant. Thank you for joining us, Professor Imperiale. Welcome back. How are you doing today? It's Thanks for I'm doing well, and thanks for having me back. I really enjoyed our last conversation and looking forward to updating you guys. Absolutely. So speaking of our last conversation, last time you were on, you talked to us about uh, your research involving the BK virus. Uh, have there been any significant updates to that? Uh, anything new going on? Yeah, I could tell you um, a, a really exciting result that we've gotten recently. In fact, we just published it um, last month. So I think last time I told you about how the virus kind of infects people and establishes a persistent infection in healthy people, but in transplant patients it can replicate out of control and cause mm-hmm. disease. And when that replication occurs, it's accompanied by recombination events in the viral genome that enhance its ability to replicate. And we've now been able to recapitulate that in cells and culture. So we've set up a system where we can infect cells and the virus just sort of persists at a very low level for varying periods of time from experiment to experiment that changes. But then eventually what happens is replication just takes off. And when we take the viral DNA at those different time points and sequence it, what we find is right before it takes off, there's an enormous amount of recombination in the viral genome. And most of those recombination events kill the virus, but every once in a while you get one that enhances its ability to replicate and take off. So I think we could start asking some really interesting questions now in this culture system about how the virus persists, are there cellular factors that are involved in these recombination events that could be potential targets uh, to to deal with the virus. So presumably the basic idea behind all of this is that we can is the idea that we can move towards a cure for this, or is the idea that we can move towards a sort of a system where we can we can prevent it from replicating out of control? Yeah, I, I, ideally we'd like to be able to move towards a cure. I, I can't remember if I remember if I mentioned it last time, but there are no antiviral drugs that we can use right now for this, so we don't have a good target. And so if we could identify potential targets where the virus and the cell are interacting, that might be a potential way to go for a cure. Yeah. And on the, uh, on the subject of antiviral drugs, why is it that they don't seem to be used very frequently? And there doesn't seem to be a lot of them on the market. I, I've read that it exists for things like the flu. I've read that it exists for Ebola. But why is it that viruses are, sp- are so hard to target with these antiviral drugs? Why aren't we seeing more of them? Yeah, so, so that's a great question. So um, first of all, just generally speaking, right, antiviral drugs will usually target a viral enzyme. And so the question is, how different is the viral enzyme from the equivalent enzyme in the cell such that the, the drug will specifically affect the viral enzyme without affecting the cellular enzyme, right? right? Because then you get toxicity. Right. Okay, so that's one part of the equation, and that varies then from virus to virus. And then the second part is that, you know, I looked into this a little bit more, and um, you're right, we don't have a lot of good antivirals for acute viral infections, like the flu, although there is Tamiflu, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But for chronic infections, we actually do have good drugs, like for HIV, for hepatitis C, right? We can cure hepatitis C now with antiviral drugs. So so why doesn't it work for acute infections? And I think that's because by the time you get in there and are able to, you know, use the drug, it's too late. By by then, the virus has kind of done its thing, the immune system's starting to kick in, and it's going to clear the virus in most people anyway, right? right? So for example, if you look at Tamiflu, um, you know, you have to give it very early on in the course of infection, and it only decreases 
the, the amount of viral infection and the symptoms a little bit. It doesn't actually get rid of it. Um, okay. And the same now, you know, with some of the things that we're using to treat COVID-19, like monoclonal antibodies, remdesivir, there's this new drug that just got um, uh, really encouraging results a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if you saw this. It's called, I, I wrote it down here because it's a hard name to pronounce, molnupiravir. Um, um, and so, but again, you have to treat early. Right. Otherwise, it doesn't have an effect. Okay. So, does that mean, could, would it be plausible to use these in a preventative way um, if if we expect people you know like doctors or nurses or people who work in hospitals to be exposed to something dangerous is it at all plausible or could we consider using these antiviral drugs as a preventative tool so I, I guess it's, it's plausible but so there are two limitations so first of all these things like monoclonal antibodies from severe they have to be given intravenously Okay. So you can't right. really use those. This new one is actually in a pill form, so I think you could think about using it prophylactically if it doesn't have any, you know, right. toxic side effects. If you're going to have to give it for a long period of time, right? Because if you're going to use it to prevent, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to give it to people once a week, every day, for how long, right? So I think it's all going to have to sort itself out. I um. I'm very curious as to the difference between what an acute infection is and just, I don't know what the, the chronic. chronic or, um, yeah, chronic infection is. And you were, you brought it up with uh, antiviral drugs. We had, they seem to work well on, on chronic infections, but not on acute infections. What, so is, is an acute infection just an infection that has a much higher dose of disease in you? Um, and I'm, I ask this question is for, or in sort of to try to frame it in, this, in, in the sense of with COVID, we now hear of people who are vaccinated, who are very healthy and who can, who do test positive for COVID. But what, you know, it, what does that mean for those people if they test positive, but they've been vaccinated and they're, they feel fine and there is no, no effects. How does that, you know, how does that relate to the difference between acute and chronic infections and things like yeah. that. So mm -hmm. acute and chronic infection really are, are not really related to the severity of the disease. It's it's more how long the disease lasts. Okay. So acute infection, think of the common cold. Right. You get sick, you feel terrible for a few days and mm -hmm. it goes away because your immune system's basically come in right. and clear the infection out. A chronic infection is something like HIV or hepatitis mm -hmm. C where the virus can just continue to replicate over very long periods of time right within the host and so that's what makes it chronic okay um so does that mean and so with um with antiviral drugs we can treat is is the distinction with an antiviral drug that we can treat chronic illnesses as opposed, or chronic diseases as opposed to acute diseases is that just purely based on how much of the disease is present in your cells it's yeah, not exactly. It's more that the, because the infection is chronic, there's more time for the drugs to work. Okay, and, I see. And, and that makes sense. Back. I okay. think that, that's the way that I would think about it. Okay, that that makes that that makes that's a very right. So with HIV, right, we treat with these anti-retroviral mm -hmm. agents for you know basically for the person's lifetime. Right. Right. Because the, the virus is always going to have that opportunity to come back if you don't keep it in check. Right. Right. But at the same time because the immune system can't eliminate the virus, mm. it's always going to be there. 
right? right. And, and so that's, that's one of the hallmarks of a chronic infection, is the immune system just can't get rid of it. Is, is there a particular re reason that the, the immune system cannot get rid of some diseases as opposed to others? Because I think, I, from my understanding, if I catch the flu, my immune system will get rid of it, it'll be gone. Whereas if I get, if I get HIV or something, it'll just stay there forever. What, what makes, what, in what way is HIV different from the flu that makes my immune system not be able to fight it? Yeah, so with, with HIV, it's really interesting because the immune system has a very hard time mounting an immune response against the steps in the viral infection that you'd really like to target. So for example, with COVID, right, the, the, the vaccines we have are, are um, working by interfering with that interaction between the virus and the cell when the virus binds to the cell. Right. And that equivalent function in HIV, it's really hard for the immune response to make antibodies that will interfere with that function. And that's one of the reasons why the immune system is not very good at, at HIV. And HIV has a high mutation rate, and so it can evade oh, I see. The, the immune response. So is the cell-to-cell -cell interaction between HIV and human cells, is it like a lot more complicated than something like COVID in our cells? Um, what I so know about it is a little bit more complicated. Okay. Um, so with, with HIV, um, what happens is first the virus kind of contacts the cell. And then there's a change in the viral protein that exposes another part of the virus to the cell. And then it's that part of the virus that allows the viral envelope or membrane to fuse with the cellular membrane, okay? And so to get good antibodies to block that, you have to get antibodies that recognize kind of that last step. Right. And, right. and for a multiple, there's a, there's a myriad of reasons why the immune system is just not good at that. I see. Hmm. Interesting. So, um, <clears throat> why is there, you know, we hear for the most part that there is no vaccine against HIV, although I think that may be changing, I've heard some. But anyways, for, for the most part, there is no vaccine against HIV. Whereas for things like COVID, we saw the vaccine come along incredibly quickly. Um, at least the proposed recipe for the vaccine came along incredibly quickly. What makes, um, H what makes it so difficult to find a vaccine for something like HIV as opposed and or on the contrary what makes it relatively so easy to find a vaccine that works well against COVID mm -hmm. yeah so it's, it's basically the same issue you know the, the vaccine has to be able to induce the proper immune response that will right. then be able to interfere with that step in infection and it's just really really hard to do that for HIV whereas with with COVID-19 it was really easy right to you know, mount an immune response against the spike protein and those antibodies work. So is it sort of a uh, double-edged sword in, in, the, in the case that you have a virus that the immune system is not particularly well equipped to, to fight, then a vaccine is not going to necessarily be particularly helpful because the vaccine is only a way of sort of in, encouraging your immune system or priming your immune system to do its job. But if your immune system will just never do its job, then is a vaccine not is, is, is that sort of the, uh, you know, the dog biting its own tail sort of? Yeah, so not exactly right, because what people are doing now is as, as we learn more about what needs to happen with HIV, mm. you can try to make vaccines that will force the immune system to okay, mount right. that response, right? right. So, so the, the um, advantage of a vaccine is you may be able to get the immune system to do something that it can't do naturally. Right. It, it, with respect to the natural yeah. infection. So when... Um, when we're looking to create a vaccine, how the I'm not 
particularly well versed in biology or anything like that, but it sounds incre it sounds like there's a lot going on, a huge amount of different mechanisms that you could use that it sounds like even the interaction between a virus and a cell is is very is complicated already. How do we go about designing a vaccine? For example, with COVID, how um how did people look at the COVID disease and think, oh, okay, I this this gives me a few options and and then so quickly create a recipe for a vaccine. Yeah, so, so one of the prime things that we try to do when we're developing a vaccine against a virus is to produce what are called neutralizing antibodies. So that a neutralizing antibody is of an antibody that's gonna prevent the virus from infecting the cell in the first place. Right, okay. okay. And so with, with COVID-19, the obvious um, vaccine candidate for raising neutralizing antibodies was the spike protein, because we knew right. with coronaviruses, that's the protein that allows the virus to engage with the cell. So mm -hmm. sort of an obvious target there okay. um, to, to make the vaccine against. Um. So, you had, so you had that, and, and, and on the other side of the equation, you had decades of work that had gone into developing mRNA as a right. mechanism of delivering vaccines, right? right? And those two just came, oops, came together <laughs> at the same time. Um, and, and, you know, that's what allowed us to really move things through very quickly. Right, okay. Um, and do you think, is this a, um, is this a sort of a new ability that modern biology has found to be able to develop vaccines so quickly? Uh, is, has there been a lot of progress in how we could go from new, new disease to, to vaccine fast? Or is it still, or has that, you know, is it still largely trial and error and there's definitely been improvements in figuring out what antigen you want to use in the first place, okay. and then what um, parts of that antigen are probably most likely to uh, elicit right. the immune response that you want, right? So there's that part. And then there are these, you know, sort of what I would call these platforms, like mRNA, like these adenovirus vectors in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that have also been improvements in, in development, right? So those two things come together. So, but, but still, at some point, there is going to be a little trial and error, right? right? Figuring out is that uh, you know going to elicit the proper type of immune response. But the other thing, right, that we sped up this time was the production. Right. right? So yeah. that was, that's what Operation Warp Speed did. Was basically you know they pumped money into companies and said produce these things before we're really sure if they're going to work. Right. So that will have. So once we know if they work, we've got them and we can run with them. Right. Is, go for it. Yeah. So, so we have these fantastic vaccines, and all of this data proves that they're very effective and uh, a large majority of the population has gotten it, like 96% of students at this university has gotten it. But there's still people that kind of shy away from it and they move towards things like hydroxychloroquine initially, uh, more recently ivermectin. Is there any um, data that would support using uh, treatments such as those rather than getting the vaccine and why do you think that people are flocking towards something like that rather than going with something such as the vaccine that is proven to be effective yeah so first of all there's no data that support the use of hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin for right. covid 19. okay so why are people you know attracted mm. to, to those kinds of things so you know what happened early on during the pandemic right is that people started basically grabbing you know, drugs that we know work for other things off the shelf and asking, do they work on SARS coronavirus too? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so they do an experiment in, in the lab and in culture generally, see if it inhibits infection. And if that looks promising, then they publish what's called a preprint usually, right? Um, and then someone picks up on that 
right, without any kind of, you know, clinical, bona fide clinical trial or anything like that, and start saying, okay, I'm going to give it to a patient and see what happens. Okay, so let's say you have a, a cold, and I hand you a bottle of Coca-Cola, you drink that bottle of Coca-Cola, next day you're feeling fine. <laughs> Did that Coca-Cola cure your cold? Right, it's causation versus right, correlation. It's correlation versus causation. And unless you do a controlled clinical trial, mm -hmm. you don't know that. And that's what happened with these drugs. And because it's such a severe disease, right, people are trying to grasp onto anything they can. And then, of course, there's all these you know, underlying political things that you know we just can't you know control for either. Right. I mean, um, I, I thought initially at the you know when the, as the pandemic was unrolling i thought this is a very interesting example of s sort of how statistics is no, are not necessarily intuitive from the perspective that we, you know we hear about a vaccine trial and you hear that you know x y and z vaccines were tried on 100,000 people and they produced results and you hear that you know such and such vaccine is 90 some percent effective and at the at the start of it i was very curious as to how we get to a number like 90 percent because presumably we don't take some people who are healthy vaccinate them put them in a glass box and throw in some covid and and see how they respond to it presumably it's based on well we vaccinated such and such people and by and large we imagine that you know, 100,000 people won't behave too differently from the next 100,000 people. So if, if these people get less sick, then we can say that it's, it's effective. But that is, a, a, as far as I can tell, a very unintuitive, that's not a particularly intuitive way of thinking about efficiencies. And I think if you hadn't spent time thinking about how you can extract statistics out of sort of messy data pools, then you would, I mean, it'd just leave you a bit confused, I think. Um, and one thing that I thought was particularly interesting about this COVID business is that different people seem to react so very differently to the same disease. You know, we hear of perfectly healthy people who have nothing and people who at first you would think would have not, you know, not a different immune response get extremely sick from it. Is there any reason why COVID in, in particular seems to elicit such such a wide spectrum of different responses from otherwise similar individuals? So, so I think, let me talk about sort of just spectrum of diseases and virus infections in general mm. first and then come back to that question. So there are a few things that are going to influence the outcome of the disease. So the first is going to be the size of the inoculum, right? So right. you can imagine if you're mm. exposed to a lot more virus, you might get more severe disease. Right. The second mm. is going to be how the virus enters into the host. Mm -hmm. Is it entering into the host via a portal where it's more likely to establish an infection. So there's sort right. of those viral determinants. And then there's host genetics, right? We are all different. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and, and so, um, for example, with HIV, there's a, there's a very rare mutation in the population for, uh, in the receptor for HIV. And those people do not get infected with HIV. Lucky them. Okay. So, um, so there's that. So, so coming back with COVID, then what's a little bit different there is we have a situation where the the, the virus is just finding its way in the human population. Right. It's not established in the human population, so it has a lot more kind of space to explore. Right. In, in terms of severity of disease, I think, um, and, and so I think that's that's probably one of the other factors here. Interesting. So. It would a reasonable or tentative conclusion be that the reason why we see such different responses from people with COVID 
that would is that not particularly due to the the biology of the COVID disease, rather the way that it's being spread around and how you can how and how new it is and sort of how much differences in terms of exposure and ways of getting it that people yeah that people have. Yeah, I, I think it is. Remember that disease is a is a function of the pathogen and the host. Right. 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 And so mm-hmm. it's it's that combination of things, and, and there's many different combinatorial events that can happen yeah. here. And probably with COVID, that that the combinatorial uh, factor is higher just because it's a new virus right. in the population. Right? Other viruses have kind of you know you could think about I hate to anthropomorphize viruses, yeah. but they've kind of settled into a routine, mm-hmm. you know, and, and and they've established more of a working relationship. Yeah, with with us, right? I mean, it makes sense intuitively that things that that are new will settle down to some sort of an equilibrium, and I imagine that COVID will undergo a largely similar sort of settling down process as we learn to deal with it. Right, and ideally, we can force that process with vaccines. Right. Um, Something that I um, I've often thought was interesting with um, with COVID and or diseases in general is you hear this and I've, I've read this and I hear this from various people that as a disease sort of goes around the human population and mutates, it has a tendency to become more infectious and less uh, virulent, uh, less, less toxic or dangerous to the person who gets infected. Is there, um, is that, do you think that sounds science that, um, and is, is that true? And if, if that is true, why would that be the case? Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure that's always true, that, okay. that disease mm-hmm. become more transmissible, less virulence. But, you know, it's really hard for a virus to, like, do everything. Like, right. be, be highly transmissible and highly virulent right. at, at the same time. There's usually some sort of trade-off there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, um, you know, for, for example, you can see that the Delta variant of COVID became more transmissible, but it's not more virulent. Right. Okay, mm-hmm. so, so, you know, it's hard to do those kinds of things. Um, but one of the things that you have to think about this in terms of is that, and this doesn't apply to COVID, so let me, again, mm-hmm. COVID is kind of a special case right now. But for, for other viruses that infect humans, viruses have reached a point where almost all mutations are going to be detrimental to the virus. Okay, right. and so they're kind of on the edge, right? Where right. They've, they've reached that point where they're doing their best, and, mm-hmm. and you know, mutations are going to be detrimental, and and so um, they have to maintain that in order to survive in the population. Remember, viruses have one goal, and that is to infect the host, replicate themselves, and now move on to the next host. Right. That's all they want to do. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now with COVID, though, again, because it's new in the population. Mm-hmm. It has a lot more mutational space to explore, right? Because it hasn't necessarily reached that point where most mutations are detrimental, mm-hmm. right? And so, what we have to do as humans is to prevent it from having that space to explore, right? Right, and mm-hmm. allow it to replicate as little as possible, right? right. Yeah. And as it has evolved, it's managed to find a way to stay with us for the past year and a half. Do you think that this is something that's going to become endemic, such as the flu, where we might need a booster shot every year? Or is this something that we can uh, potentially still drive out from being such a common disease? I, I think it is going to become pandemic, uh, end, endemic. Sorry, mm-hmm. um, and, and I think um, the reason for that is just that we're not going to have high enough immunity in, right. in the population. I think that's, that's clear. Um, 
Whether we're going to need a booster shot every year or not is unclear at this point in time. We still don't know how long-lasting immunity to this particular virus is going to be. And then also we don't know, is it going to mutate the same way flu does, mm -hmm. which is the reason why we need a flu shot every year, right? It's because of mutation. Um, and so those two factors are going to feed into how often, you know, we're going to need to do booster shots, I think. What? Why is it that some vaccines seem to last a lifetime or to some close approximation of lifetime? I'm thinking of things like yellow fever. People get, get it once and it, it will last them for a really long time. And you see I, well, other, other vaccines, you, you need a, a booster shot, even if it's not for the purpose of, oh, the virus mutated like the flu. It's so, <clears throat> my understanding is that we give people shots and the immune system for some diseases will forget what it learned with that shot, whereas for others, it'll remember it for a long time. What's the sort of mechanism or why is that the case? So why does our immune system seem to forget about some diseases and really remember others? Yeah, so, so basically you, you nailed the issue there, which is that there's two things. One is the genetic stability of the virus, right? So measles, right? Very genetically stable. And so you get the vaccine and, and you're immune for right. life. Same with polio. Okay. Um, whereas, you know, flu, it's the opposite. You, you don't have this genetic stability. But yeah, then there's also this question of how long lasting the immune system response is going to be. And that, and that deals with a, a function of the immune system that's called immunological memory. And again, for different antigens, the, the amount of time that that memory persists just differs. Um, and, and so, um, it's just going to vary from, from pathogen to pathogen. And, and right now, as far as I know, I'm not an expert in, in the immune system, but we don't have good ways to predict what that's going to be. Right. Um, that, that was actually going... And, sorry, and there's probably a third component, sorry, which is, is the nature of the vaccine, right? Because there are different types of vaccines. So some vaccines are inactivated viruses, like the, the typical right. flu vaccine that you get, you know, shot in the arm, um, whereas other vaccines are um, what are called live attenuated viruses. So you've, oh. you may have heard of flu mist, which is a, a flu vaccine that actually the, is a, the nasal, a, the nasal yeah. run. Yeah. That, and what that does is it actually replicates a little bit in your nose because it can replicate at low temperature, but it can't replicate at body temperature. So it replicates oh. a little bit in your nose, induces an immune response, but then if it gets any further into your body, it can't replicate. Huh. So it doesn't cause disease. That seems that seems ex extremely intelligent. Um, it's, it sounds like a good general commanding some troops. Yeah. By the way, flu mist, just just so you know, it was developed here at the School of Public Health. Was ah. that so? I didn't know that. Yeah. Cool. Um, and so there, would I um, would I be correct in assuming is is there are there intelligent ways of predicting how long or in your immune memory to when your immune how your immune memory differs depending on different kinds of antigens. Um, is there a way of predicting how long it'll last, or is, can we only tell through experiment? Um, will, for example, with COVID, will we be able to predict, oh, we think the vaccine will only last X amount of time, or do we just have to sort of see how long it takes people to start getting sick again? Yeah, like I said, I, I, I don't really know the answer to that question, but I don't think there's a way to predict, because I think if there were, I would know right. about it. <laughs> <laughs> right. So I think it is trial and error. To Right, because a lot of the things we're assuming about COVID-19 are based on what we know about immunity to the coronaviruses that cause common cold. Right. And we know there that it only lasts a couple of years, generally, before people get reinfected with the same coronavirus. So. Yeah, that, um, that makes a lot of sense. Um, something that I think is relatively interesting from the 
virus evolution perspective, why do we see some viruses evolve to be more and more deadly? Because, or deadlier, because it, see, you know, we, we were just talking about how the sole goal of a virus is to infect an organism and, uh, and reproduce itself. Why do we see, because, and presumably, therefore, if you kill your host, or if you, if you end, yeah, if, if you kill your host, you can no longer use him as a host. So why do some, why have some viruses evolved to be, become more deadly? So presumably can, that's not in their... Can, can you give me an example of a virus that's evolved to become more deadly? Because I can't think of one. I, su I suppose not. <laughs> I, I mean... Some viruses are more deadly than others. Right. right. But that's just how, that would just be a function of how they were created. So what causes them to not evolve to become less deadly and rather stay at a deadly rate when they could potentially... Yeah, again, I think, I think it's a function of transmission, right? They have mm -hmm. to be able to spread. And so how do they find that, you know, find... Because I, I think you're right in some senses that, generally speaking, it's probably not a good idea for the virus to kill the host before it has a chance to right. spread. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. And so from that point of view, you would think Ebola would be a terrible virus. But the problem yeah. is that after it kills the host because of people's practices and, and behaviors, it still has the opportunity to spread, right? Mm. Um, and, and so, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's just a combination of sort of societal factors and viral factors in, in, a, in a case like that. Right, um, which is unfortunately, I think, probably unhelpful in, how, in terms of how we develop strategies for dealing with disease, the fact that there's so much complexity going on and how difficult it is yeah. to predict Sort of yep. the various behaviors, and I'm thinking especially with the return of winter. You know, we uh, it's we've had COVID for two summers now, and it seemed every time that over the summers it's eased up a little bit, and over the winters it might get worse. Um, and now I think now that we're we seem pretty happy that we're re-emerging from it and that things are going better. Is there an? Do you think that winter will have a? a, a impact on how COVID is going, or do you think that shouldn't be too much of a factor? I, I think there's going to be a couple of things that are going to contribute to that. So one is vaccination rates, right? right. So if they keep going up, mm. that's going to knock things down, yeah. right? And then there's also going to be the rate of at which people who are not vaccinated get infected, so kind mm. of natural immunity building up. And then the third is going to be the ability of the virus to transmit. And of course, during winter, it transmits better just because people are, are indoors in close mm -hmm. contact and so that's where mask wearing right is going to be a major and social yeah. distancing and you know yeah. the kinds of things we've gotten used to are going to be big factors so right? so at uh, at what point do those things no longer become necessary because we we're kind of in a bubble here in ann arbor but we've got a very very high vaccination rate at the school but we still have to wear masks indoors and a uh, little bit of uh control of the amount of people in a room uh, so at what point do those precautions no longer become necessary yeah so I, I don't know if you guys were around during the summer but there was a short period of I, time this summer where I we was. didn't have to wear masks right. anymore yeah. and then what happened was Delta came mm -hmm. around and that's when we decided we have to go back to wearing masks so I think I think my I would hope that once Delta is under control mm. right we can stop wearing masks on campus again yeah. um, but you're right we don't live in a bubble Right, and we have to deal with the rest of the community here, mm -hmm. right? Washtenaw County people are coming in and out. Mm -hmm. um, you know, employees who, who live in other places, you know, in the state, in Ohio. I know people commute up from, yeah. you know, northwestern mm -hmm. Ohio. Um, so yeah, again, it's going to be a function of how, can we get the vaccination rate of the community up high enough 
to where, more generally speaking, we don't have to wear masks. So even at that period of time during the summer, I stopped wearing a mask in the supermarket. But I went back to doing that yeah. you know, when we had when Delta started coming around. So I, I would hope I could go back to not wearing a mask at some point in time again. I think that would be lovely. Uh, <laughs> I, I would be very happy about that. Um, in with you know with precisely if if we take a, the case of the university where people are on average very vaccinated, um, we you know people still do test positive with even if they are vaccinated they don't really have symptoms what does that mean practically speaking because my thinking is if we're testing someone well the point of the test is is that there should be an actionable there should be something that we can do it shouldn't just be useless information because i mean if there's nothing that we can practically speaking do or nothing intelligent that we can practically speaking do do then why are we bothering with the test with and you know clearly before if someone tested positive and they weren't vaccinated we all knew what that meant and what to do but now we you know we i think we're gonna have this question or this problem of as the as the amount of vaccinated people keeps going up what what are we supposed to take or what meaning are we supposed to extract from a vaccinated person testing positive does that still mean that they're just as contagious are they less contagious are they is it perhaps nothing what are, is there anything intelligent that we can read from that and, and you know do? Yeah. So, to the best of my knowledge, from what I've read in the literature, a vaccinated person is still contagious, but at a much lower rate than an unvaccinated person. Okay. So, the issue there again comes back to who in the community is vaccinated and who's not. Right. So, putting aside people who don't want to be vaccinated. Okay. There are individuals in the community who cannot be vaccinated right now. Right. Little kids, people who have compromised immune systems mm -hmm. or other, um, you know, things that prevent them from being able to be vaccinated. So we still need to protect them. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. Until we get a high enough level of immunity in the community that we really feel the community is protecting them. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's why you want to still do testing, still know when people are potentially contagious and then take the proper precautions. Right. Right. Would, um, do you think, and I, I don't know enough, I haven't been reading, in, I don't read enough medical journals to be able to tell this, but do you think that, for example, if a vaccinated person tests positive, would a mask and some added social distancing be an adequate safety precaution? Or should we still think about, well, stay home for a few days? And also, how long should you stay home for? Because it, you know, what? I think at the beginning of the pandemic, it was 14 days, and then I heard 10 days, and then I heard it drop down to seven, mm -hmm. and now I'm hearing 10 again, and I, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. And I mean, you know, it'd be, it would be good if there was some motivation behind that. If we could, now that we're starting to learn how to actually live with this, fact, with this disease, as opposed to just, uh, we don't know what to do, so we'll just all stay separate. It would be good if we could sort of start optimizing our safety precautions. Do you? Um, have you read anything about that? Do you know how long we should start staying at home? Whether, for example, if you should stay at home, a vaccine would reduce the amount of time that you should quarantine? Yeah, so I, I don't remember what the current CDC guidelines are for staying home if you have bona fide COVID unvaccinated right. person. I, I want to say it's seven or ten days after the last symptoms or fever right it's something along along those lines but you can find that on the cdc yeah. website i i know even less about what the current thinking is for a vaccinated person um, right who become who either tests positive or has some you know um, mild symptoms 
Um, I mean, I think my personal feeling is that anyone who has any kind of respiratory symptoms should stay home. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Until those symptoms go go away. Mm. And I mean, especially so whether whether it's COVID, common cold, flu, yeah. stay home. And yeah. I think that's becoming more of a common thing now that COVID has happened. Is that just people that are sick in general are starting to realize, oh, I can just stay home and not spread this disease to other people. I don't need to force myself to go into work. Right. Assuming, though, that, you know, they have the ability to do that, right? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of people still don't have sick days. You know, they have to work. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, society has to do something. Yeah. I mean, we're we're fortunate here in the sense that, I mean, okay, I can zoom into class and things like that. But if I had to drive a truck and people were counting on the stuff in my truck to be moved, then you your options are definitely more limited. Is do you think there's a a way, a way of determining how contagious someone could be? be? I'm thinking, for example, could a test you know the test at the moment only says you have it or you don't have it. It doesn't say you kind of. It doesn't say you have fifty percent COVID or you have like seventy five or you know maybe we could give it points or something. It, do you, is that? Would that, is that a metric that could exist? Um, could you be able to determine from a test how likely a person is to transmit COVID or how much of it they're carrying around with them? I, I think we do know that for the PCR test. Because I know, for example, that the PCR test can detect infections in individuals who have not been shown to spread the disease. So, okay. so it's really sensitive. So I think, I, think, I think we might know what that threshold is hmm. from PCR testing. But you're right, like these rapid tests... You know, right. that you buy a CVS or something like that. They're, they're not yeah. sensitive enough to know that. Interesting. Although I th- I've, I've heard arguments that they will only be positive if, if you are contagious. But I'm right. not familiar okay. with the data. For right. the antigen or the PCR? The, the antigen test. Okay, yeah. Yeah, I, worked, I actually worked in a PCR lab this summer, and they, I had to validate some antigen, chats, antigen tests. Um, and they were horrible. Like, we took known, like, PCR-tested positive samples and dripped them onto this antigen test that essentially looks like a pregnancy test. Yeah. And it's supposed to come up with a little line that shows that it's positive, and they would just remain blank. So I'm sure it varies, and I'm sure there are a lot of, you know, environmental factors that affect mm-hmm. that test, right? Anytime you're doing an at-home test, it's not quite as yeah. carefully performed as a PCR test yeah, in a, a certified laboratory. So... You know, for um, I'm yeah, sorry. I was gonna say I'm sure. I'm sure from manufacturer to manufacturer, yeah. there's gonna be a lot of difference. You know, I'm you have sure, to look yeah. at. You know, is it a reputable? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> in, industrial standards are never an easy thing to get down. I mean, there's bound to be some variation. And Talon, I'm sure, is a very talented PCR verifier. <laughs> but yeah, you know, everyone makes mistakes. Um, I'm curious, is for someone who is, you're a professor in the school of medicine. How much has COVID? sort of come into your your framework of thinking Be, i mean you definitely would know more about biology and diseases than than the ever than i mean than even people who know a decent amount but how would you you know you probably you don't study covid directly how much has covid been a conversation uh amongst people like you who are in you know in the field of medicine but who aren't you know covid specialists yeah so so as a virologist it's come into my conversation a lot but it's coming even more because of my long-standing interest in biosecurity and, and science okay. policy. Mm. Um, you know, because there have been these debates about, you know, did it escape from a lab? Yeah. Um, were mm. there gain-of-function experiments that were being done? Mm. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah, yeah, I've been thinking about this day in and day out, for sure. <laughs> and as far as your, uh, your policy expertise goes, this isn't necessarily an immunological question, and I don't know if there's a correct answer to this question, but 
in the interest of getting a appropriate uh, vaccination level in the population, do you think that it is the government's responsibility to start mandating the vaccine for people that refuse to get it? Or is it something that people should be allowed to decide for themselves, even though it's something that would benefit everybody? Yeah, so right here in the U.S., we love our individual rights. Mm-hmm. Right? It's built into the Constitution. Yeah. Okay, but I think that the government has a responsibility to society as a whole. Sure. And, and as we talked about, there are individuals in society who are at risk for getting this disease because of the behaviors of others. Mm-hmm. So if my personal behavior is affecting you, has the, the, the possibility of affecting you, then I think that's where the government has a right to step in. Sure. Right? Because right. mm-hmm. there's a responsibility. I'm not just responsible to myself. I've got to be responsible to those around me, too. And, and so, yeah, in that sense, I think that the, the government, you know, should be mandating vaccines. I have no problem with that. I, um, if they're safe and they're effective, um, you know. Which they're shown to be, yeah. I've often thought that the analogy to drunk driving is sort of pertinent because yeah, it would be... I get why it wouldn't be especially nice, but it would be handy, you know, for drunk people to be able to drive, but we don't let them for precisely that reason, because they might hit a child who's crossing the road. It seems like the vaccine is a largely analogous situation. It would be handy, well, again, somewhat, well, but getting is just so easy, it it would just make sense to get it. Right. Well, here's the other other argument I don't buy is this. I want to do my own research. Well, yeah. What if I said, you know what? I'm not really sure red lights play a function at the intersection. I'm going to do my own research, you know, mm. and just start running through a few of them, see what happens. Especially yeah. when that research just involves looking at somebody's <laughs> Facebook post that doesn't have any actual yeah. science behind you know, it. So, I, I mean, I think these, you know, some of these arguments, they, they just don't make sense. Um, I, I understand, you know, I, you know, I understand people want to be able to control their own mm. lives, right? But again, we have this, we have this greater responsibility. Sure to society how um i you know we we hear a lot about vaccination campaigns and how they've been able to eradicate certain diseases why have we been why are certain diseases seemingly eradicable by vaccination campaigns whereas uh, uh, whereas you know others don't seem to be even for diseases that have an effective long-lasting vaccine so i think i think i'm right in saying that we got rid of polio or almost almost and you know we only have a few cases come up every year i think in the entire world and i think that's probably because the polio vaccine works so well and we've given it to so many people why are why are some diseases just going to be with us forever even the ones that i think have a a relatively effective vaccine yeah so so there are a couple of factors there number one is that you need a um, disease agent that only infects humans so you right. don't have any other reservoirs out in the wild right, that, right? Mm-hmm. That, that can spread it back to humans. Number two is you need to have an effective vaccine yep. that really eradicates the agent mm-hmm. from the individual who's being vaccinated, right? or I shouldn't say eradicates it from the person who's being um, uh, vaccinated, but prevents the person from, right. from, from being vaccinated, mm-hmm. from getting infected at all, mm-hmm. right? Or, or at least to a very low level. And the third thing is you need the political will. You need right. that global mm-hmm. cooperation to get everyone vaccinated. So that worked with smallpox. Mm-hmm. We're almost there with polio, although we regressed last year because of COVID. So I hear, yeah. Um, um, and, and yeah, and you know, there was talk not too long ago about trying to now do this for measles. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I don't know where that, where that stands. But I'll, I'll tell you what, if the, if the smallpox vaccine were developed today, I don't think it would have worked because too many people would have said, I'm not going to get vaccinated. 
Mm -hmm. Same thing for polio. Yeah, I mean, those are, were, but those were visibly terrible diseases that, I mean, from what I hear from, you know, my grandparents, you, that was, you did not want to catch it. You saw the evidence firsthand, whereas with COVID, it's generally fairly removed from, I mean, it's, it's removed from your, the violence of COVID is removed from your daily experience, I yeah. think. Uh, yeah, so you know, so I wonder, news, I wonder if COVID were killing 10% of the population, mm -hmm. it infects, or if COVID really were causing severe disease in people your age and little kids, yeah. would, would people be thinking differently mm -hmm. about vaccination? Yeah, COVID is sort of the perfect storm. It, 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 hit, the, it hit the sweet spot. I, um, I'm very curious, you know, you just talked about the sort of animal reservoir with some diseases that if that reservoir of diseases keeps existing, it's going to be hard for us to, to eradicate them. What makes a disease a, either be confined to animals and or make the jump to humans? Um, you know, we hear of a number of diseases that have made the jump. What will provoke, what will cause a disease to happily remain in an animal population, and then one day, boom, it, it's in humans. Oh, yeah. How does that happen? So obviously, first of all, there has to be contact between the animal and the right. human, mm -hmm. right? So that you could get that spread. And then the virus has to be able to get into that human, mm -hmm. infect the cell there, and replicate to a high enough degree to spread again. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. and, and so there's a variety of factors there. Is there the proper receptor on the cell for the mm. virus to use to get into the cell. Once it gets into the cell, if it needs any sort of cellular enzymes for its own replication, are they there right. to help out? So there's a variety of steps that the virus has to be able to check off mm. in, right. in order to make that jump successfully. Hmm. That, uh, yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. Have, do most diseases originate from animal populations and then jump to humans? Or is that, or is that not, not, not really a correlated factor? Um, boy, that's a great question. So I think we really only know that in more recent history to some degree. So we know flu jumps from animals to humans, right? So um, there's that. We've got COVID. We've got the other coronaviruses. Right. Um, let me think about this. Whether there are other, say, common cold viruses that are constantly jumping, I don't know the answer to that question. And then bacterial diseases, let me think about that. Um, are there new bacterial diseases that have recently... Oh, yeah, you've got like Lyme disease. Right. Um, mm -hmm. so, so, yeah, those, those kinds of jumps do occur more. And I think they will occur more frequently as we move forward because of climate change, right. because of population growth. Um, just, you know, people are... <laughs> animal populations are being, you know, kind of yeah. squeezed mm -hmm. out and there's more mm -hmm. contact between individuals. One of the things I just heard a talk recently that because of um, climate change and, and warming temperatures, so a lot of uh, fungi um, basically have evolved to you know, live in the soil. So they live at right. ambient temperature. And so if they infect a human being, it's too hot. Right. Right. And, and, and so they can't do anything. But as temperature starts to rise, mm. now they adapt in the environment to those higher temperatures. Right. And then if they infect a human, they might be more likely to cause disease. Mm. Is there, do you think there's a sort of solution, a preventative solution where we could start monitoring diseases? Or is, would, do you think there's a way for us to monitor how diseases may evolve um, so that we could 
take the appropriate measures before they start becoming big. You know, with COVID, it seemed to, I remember reading in the news in December that in China there was this thing going on. I remember thinking, well, that's fine. You know, the, you, hear, you hear of diseases popping up in, in places from time to time and they never seem to get to us. Do you think there was a, there could have been a more predictable aspect to COVID or is, could there have been a, a more intelligent way to tell at the time when it was, you know, confined to smaller geographic areas, this is much more serious than, uh, than those other diseases? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so there's two parts to that, I think. First is that, yeah, we do try, there, there's a big project out there, it's called the Virome Project, mm -hmm. to basically try to sample every existing virus out in the, in mm -hmm. the world and, and then try to figure out, you know, can it infect humans or not? And largely how that's been done up till now is you, you do a laboratory experiment or you put it on some human cells and right. culture mm -hmm. and see if it can do that. In fact, that's what they were doing at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, mm -hmm. which was they were taking these back coronaviruses and trying to figure out, well, will those viruses be able to infect human cells or not? Right. right. So, so mm -hmm. there's that part of it. What I'm hoping is that computational tools will become available where we could be able to basically look at an RNA molecule mm -hmm. and be able to predict, right? Will that RNA molecule, um, if that's a viral genome, um, right. be able to encode proteins that allow that virus to infect human cells, mm -hmm. right? To cause disease, to be pathogenic right. inside those, those human cells. And I think a lot of that's gonna be based on um, improvements in artificial intelligence, machine mm -hmm. learning, right? And where we could get to that point where, yeah, you know, we'll know a priori, right. just based mm -hmm. on a sequence, a nucleic acid sequence, what the behavior of that molecule is gonna be. Mm -hmm. That would be. I think be really things cool. are moving mm -hmm. in that direction, um, and, and I don't know when we're going to get there, but um, yeah, that would be really exciting. Mm. That sure. that will hope that that would mean that would be incredibly handy. Is this something that um, that, for example, with your research on BK, do you think that there's any? BK is obviously not COVID, but do you think there are tools that are, are being developed in things that are out not COVID research, for example, your own, that could be helpful for, you know that could be applicable to, to new viral, you know, new diseases and new situations that we may find ourselves in. There, there definitely are. The, 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 the really kind of interesting thing is that you never know, though, when that type of tool right. is going to come about. Mm. And you never know when a tool that's developed today is going to have a, that kind of mm. application, right? So, for example, you know, the whole... Um, kind of revolution in molecular biology and recombinant DNA technology came out of experiments where people were looking at how bacterial viruses infect bacteria, Ooh. right? And that mm -hmm. led to the discovery of these enzymes that could cut DNA at specific sequences and the ability right. to, you know, bind, you know, um, ligate pieces of DNA together and, mm -hmm. and do kinds of things. Um, PCR, right? The other thing, right? Mm -hmm. PCR was developed. And then, you know, what I heard at the time, and I think it's kind of turned out to be true is the applications of PCR are mostly just limited by people's imagination. Right. Same thing mm. with gene editing techniques. Mm. Um, so I think you, you never know when a technology um, or, or an experimental result is going to have that kind of application because it's not always obvious right. right mm. at the time it's being discovered. I, f I find it in rather incredible when you hear about things in medicine, how many different tools in the arsenal there seems to be with every new disease. When you hear people talk about how, you know, we develop vaccines, drugs, or, you know, anything to fight to fight those diseases, you hear of, oh yeah, this, this disease works in such and such way, and, you know, we've come up with such and such cool way to prevent them from working, which I think is, is, is rather impressive. You, um, I mean, even with COVID, the, the way that, you know, you were you were talking as you were talking about the way that we can target 
the um, the way that COVID works in extremely specific ways is is pretty impressive. Are you thinking that? Are you able to see? For, are there? Do you think there's going to be new methods um, of creating things like vaccines? So we've heard about the inactivated. Um, you know, we there's inactivated viruses. There's the semi what was it called? Attenuated. Attenuated. <laughs> uh, now we have the mRNA uh, vaccines. Are there new projects on the horizon? Do you think there are potentially new ways of, of further creating vaccines that could be able to tackle a, 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 an even broader spectrum of diseases? Um, so remember, to, for, for a vaccine to work, right, you have to be able to produce a ultimately produce a protein that the immune response is going to recognize. Right. Uh, and, and so there are limited ways to, to do that, right? You mm -hmm. can, you know, use an mRNA and gets in the cell, gets translated into protein. Yeah. Um, you could use some, you know, like a, an attenuated virus itself mm -hmm. to produce a little bit of that protein. You could have the killed virus and then you've got the proteins that are on that killed virus that right. are acting as the antigen. Um, you know, with the J&J, &J, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, what they've do, done is engineered a different virus to make the coronavirus protein, hmm, right? right. And, and that's how you're then. So, so there's only a limited number of ways that, you know, you hmm. can allow a cell to make a protein that will be recognized by the immune system. Right. So I, I don't think there's going to be anything new. Now, uh, you know, the only thing I could, um, I could think of, I guess, would be some way to build molecules that resemble hmm. prote short regions of proteins I mean, that then could be, you know, um, recognized by the immune system and still work. I think, I mean, custom, I know that in, um, in nuclear physics, custom creation of various isotopes is a huge focus, is, a, is, a, is becoming now a big focus because we're finally in a place where, where we can start creating more customized molecules. Hope that it would, I imagine that hopefully down the, down the line we can start doing that with, um, with things like virus virus proteins and this and yeah. the likes so you know, humans are really innovative yeah you never know <laughs> something that i was really curious about is when i got so i got the moderna vaccine and when i uh when i got it i thought oh, it would be cool to learn learn about uh this 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 vaccine that i got so when i went on the moderna website and they were they had a little thing that said yeah our mrna vaccines are really cool they treat covid and just below that there was a thing that said that they were they were hoping that mrna Vac mRNA vaccines could pave a way towards creating vaccines against cancer. Is that something, how, how would that work? Because it sounds like cancer is just wildly different from a virus. And I, in my, in my brain at least, I, or with my knowledge, I can't picture a way that you could use mRNA that, or a vaccine that usually fights viruses to fight cancer. Do you know how that works? Yeah, exactly. So, so right, the idea, again, with the vaccine is similar to the kind of drug problem we talked about earlier today, right. which is that you have to have something where you've got an, an antigen mm -hmm. in the cancer cell that's different from what's in normal cells. Right. Okay, and so um, people have spent a lot of years looking for these so-called tumor antigens, mm -hmm. right? And, and then trying to, you know, drive the immune response towards um, those types of, of, of antigens. And um, I don't know if you've heard about this, this sort of relatively new treatment called CAR T cells, which is a, a way of um, basically um, specifically stimulating a, a patient's own T cells, which are part of the immune mm. system, to recognize those tumor cells. Hmm. Um, and so I can imagine then you might be able to um, also use some sort of mRNA technology. Again, if you can get that mRNA to express the appropriate protein antigen, right. 
that the immune response would need to specifically target those cancer cells while leaving other cells alone. You know, the, right now, right, the only really good cancer vaccine we have is the papillomavirus vaccine, but that's right. because it's a virus. Yeah. And so we can yeah. target the viral proteins and not worry about... Yeah, that, um, that, that is very interesting. We, um, they, we've covered a lot of sort of different aspects of how people have gone about and are going about treating um, viruses. Is there anything really exciting, you know, in your field with BK, or is there anything really exciting that you can see in the field of medicine that you hope will that will, will be able to move towards? Is there anything, you know, are there big discoveries that you hope are on the way? Are there big unsolved problems that you hope that we'll be able to solve? Um, if you're sort of looking at the future of your field, what are your hopes and dreams for it? Yeah, you know, to me, the kind of the holy grail is still an HIV vaccine. Mm. You know, right. I, I really hope we could get there um, someday, and we're making progress. And, and, you know, it's funny how science works. Like, you know, progress can be slow, and, it, and all of a sudden maybe something happens, and boom, it just sort of takes off. And maybe we'll reach that step uh, at some point here. Again, as we learn more about, you know, what does it take to really generate a good immune response against anything. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And, 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 and the, apply those kinds of things. And this may be another situation where, um, you know, machine learning mm-hmm. types of approaches may also be useful um, yeah. down the line in, in some way. So to me, that, that's a really big thing. Yeah, and, you know, cancer treatment, you know, mm-hmm. um, if, if we could just come up with better ways um, to prevent, we have good ways to prevent a lot of cancers. So early detection, right. treatment, mm-hmm. um, you know, advances there would really be great. And all these other, you know, chronic diseases, right? So all these things mm-hmm. are chronic diseases. Yeah. And, and if we could have better ways to deal with these, I think we'd be much better off. Mm, I, I agree. That would be great. Well, thank you very much for talking to us. Yeah, this has thank been you. Pleasure. This was really great. Thanks. I appreciate um, it. Yeah, it's always interesting to learn more about <laughs> COVID. And, I mean, bio, biology or f- vaccines in general. Um, I agree. Much more interesting than physics or astronomy. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why you do biology. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. This has been great. Thank you very much. All right. You're welcome. Hey everyone, thank you for listening to this podcast episode. This is Michael. This is Sam. This is Tommy. And this is Joe. If you're listening to this on YouTube, make sure to like, subscribe, and share with your friends. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, make sure to leave a review. All of the show notes can be found either in the description below or on our website. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you next week with more Everything Astronomy.